20 years ago today, the second war between the United States and Iraq began. Under the premise that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, U.S. forces invaded the country with one of its primary goals, not only finding these weapons, but deposing Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. He ruthlessly ruled the country for over 20 years and committed some horrible crimes. He was responsible for many massacres, including using chemical weapons to kill those who dared rise up against him. He established his reign through utter terror, making defiant claims about his unbreaking power and grasp of authority over Iraq. No one could ever beat Saddam. You know? When the U.S. invaded Iraq, they found no weapons of mass destruction, but they did find Saddam hiding in a hole. No longer defiant, but defeated. One soldier involved in the capture described Saddam as a man resigned to his fate. He'd later be tried for his charges and publicly executed, hanged in the gallows while millions watched in celebration. This is what happens to evil leaders who make bold claims about their rule. They get cast down, captured, shamed, executed, and largely forgotten. In our passage this morning, we see another leader who made bold claims about his rule. He, too, seems to meet the fate of all other would-be forever rulers. He gets captured, shamed, executed. But he is not forgotten. All right. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him and his life and his claims and his capture and his death. What makes Jesus so different? Why do we still remember him and talk so much about his moment of doom and seeming downfall? That's something we'll consider this morning in our passage through the book of Matthew. And so if you have your Bibles, you turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. And this morning we'll look at verses 27 through 44 together. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. We're nearing the end of Matthew's gospel. We've been here a while now, closing the book out soon. Matthew 27. This morning we look at verses 27 through 44. We read, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. 
as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Robbers who were with him also reviled him in the same way. The text before us this morning moves us closer and closer to the climax of this book. In a very real sense, the, the last three years that we've spent studying Matthew's gospel together have been preparatory. They've been meant to get us to where we've been the last few weeks, including this morning. I mean, just consider the slow, methodical way Matthew has been drawing us to the cross. For 20 chapters, Matthew kind of quickly covered three years of Jesus' public ministry, summarizing all his teaching and all his miraculous works. But since chapter 21, stretching into our passage this morning and into chapter 28, which will be in in a few weeks, Matthew spends eight entire chapters, more than a fourth of the entire book, focused just on Jesus's final week. And specifically now, over chapters 26 and 27, he slowed things down to a crawl, spending time highlighting all the little details that comprise Jesus's final hours, even as those final hours are so full of pain and agony, so full of suffering. Matthew wants us to slow down and see our Savior suffering for us and for our hearts to be grasped by him. So here's what I think is the main idea of the passage in front of us this morning, the main idea of this sermon. Jesus endured the mockery of men so that by his sacrifice, we might marvel at his mercy and majesty. Hmm. Jesus endured the mockery of men so that by his sacrifice, we might stand and marvel at his mercy and his majesty. 
As we study this passage this morning, I want you to keep your Bibles open and look with me at four themes I think we see emerge from this text. Four points of the sermon. Number one, we see the mockery of men. Number two, we see the misery of the cross. Number three, we see the mercy of our Lord. And number four, we see the majesty of Christ. We look at this passage together, four themes I think emerge all throughout. One, the mockery of men. Two, the misery of the cross. Three, the mercy of our Lord. And fourthly, the majesty of Christ. First, the mockery of men. I mean, you really cannot read this passage without noting the major emphasis that Matthew puts on how Jesus was mocked. You see it not only in the actions detailed, but also in how those actions are explicitly described and labeled. If you write in your Bibles, you might just want to kind of go through and circle how Matthew highlights, highlights all these actions. But towards the end of verse 29, Matthew says they, they mocked him. Verse 31, they mocked him. Verse 39, those who passed by derided him. Verse 41, the scribes and elders mocked him. Verse 44, the robbers reviled him. Different people at different points in this passage share the same sentiments, share the same actions toward Jesus. Mockery. Ridicule. Matthew does not want us to miss or overlook this aspect of Jesus's suffering. I mean, he could have easily progressed from Jesus's beating to Jesus being on the cross. But he stops with verses 27 through 31 to give us a deep look at the deep humiliation that Jesus went through. All right, just look at verse 27. Matthew says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So what did all these soldiers gather to do? A whole battalion of them, up to 200 soldiers. What did they all gather together to do? <coughs> to toy with Jesus. They just tortured him, beat him down to a pulp by flogging him. And you lift your eyes up one verse to where we ended last week in verse 26, where Pilate ordered Jesus to be scourged or to be flogged and then to be crucified. That, that, that scourging was a particularly sick and sadistic practice. As we touched on briefly last week, it involved using a whip with multiple leather thongs, each strap, each thong containing embedded pieces of bone and metal. And each time that whip was lifted, all those different straps would hit time after time after time after time again into the bare back of its victim mm. with no discrimination of intensity or accuracy. Right. You could get the shoulder blade, you could get the back of the head or the neck or the back or the bottom. It had no discrimination. They weren't aiming for certain spots. They were just aiming to inflict as much 
punishment as possible. Oftentimes, victims were beaten so badly by that scourging that their flesh was exposed and even their organs were exposed. Oftentimes, victims never made it to crucifixion because they died by scourging, by flogging. And so when you read uh, Pilate saying, uh, let them be scourged first, don't think that that's something minimal. Pilate said, let's torture him first. Here, the soldiers have already scourged Jesus. But instead of taking his badly beaten and bloody body to the cross to finish him off, they detour to take delight in disparaging him. They make sport of making fun of Jesus. Verse 28 says they strip Jesus of all his clothes and they parade him around naked in front of all of these soldiers. How humiliating. How debasing. Making Jesus parade around in front of all these men. They, they finally cover him up but only to keep making entertainment out of him. And they put a, a scarlet robe on him, probably the, the short red cloak worn by Roman military officials, but meant to resemble a royal robe. Who knows what fabric or material it was made out of? But any material on that opened up back would have been painful. And next they twist together several thorns and make something of a crown, a pattern after the laurel wreath that was worn by the Roman emperor. But with far rougher materials, these were not leaves that were used for this crown, but sharp thorns used and shoved down on Jesus's skull. Next, they put a reed or a stick in Jesus's right hand and make a makeshift scepter. And then they kneel and mock him saying, hell, King of the Jews, after which they all probably burst out in laughter. I mean, that was the charge for which he was being crucified, his claim to be king. But how silly of a claim. I mean, look at this sad, sad man, condemned to death, bleeding and broken, but these soldiers don't feel sad for Jesus at all. They see it rather as a prime opportunity to figuratively pour salt in the wound, exploiting Jesus more and more as a fraud, as a nobody, and not worthy of any dignity or respect, let alone any kind of honor. This mock enthronement makes the case of how menial, how small, how low he is to them. After all their shenanigans, verse 30 says they, they didn't spit on and they take the reed out of his hand and they strike him on the head. The Greek tense of those words signifies that they did these things continuously. They kept spitting on Jesus. They kept hawk spitting in his face. They kept beating him over the head time and time and time and time again with that reed. Hail, King of the Jews. And when they finished mocking and beating him, they stripped him of his little makeshift royal robe and put his own lowly clothes on this lowly man to lead him away to be crucified. Friends, we see here something of the horror 
of the depravity of men. We see here the evil of the human heart. Devaluing other people. I mean, even if Jesus were a legitimate criminal, he still would have been worthy of dignity and respect. Just as criminals, real criminals in our day who have committed real crimes are still worthy of due trial, are still worthy of dignity and respect. But how our hearts so often can belittle others, make them out as nothing, and so justify our mistreatment of them. I mean, here, some of the soldiers were, were no doubt directly mistreating Jesus. They were directly stripping him and adorning him with these fake symbols of authority. They were directly spitting on him and beating on him. But many others of the 200 in the battalion were probably simply watching, laughing, enthused at the degradation of this weak man in front of them. I wonder, do any of these signs show up in your life? Maybe in the way that you treat people made in God's image. Do you make fun of or mock people with physical or learning disabilities? Do you make fun of or mock people who are poor and lowly and needy? People who are different from you, but really in the way you treat them are down to you. I wonder if you examined your own heart, your own speech over the last few weeks, over the last few months, how often mockery might show up. Or maybe it's not something you actively have done, but others have done, and you, like many of the soldiers here in the battalion, have observed and enjoyed the show. I mean, think of the things you, you watch. Are you being entertained by things that put others down? Right, friends, I hope you understand that's what pornography is. Mm. Your personal enjoyment at the cost of someone else's degradation. And this man or woman doing things you would never want your mother or daughter doing. Mm. You would never want your husband or son doing. But yet you enjoy others doing it because somehow they're less to you than your mother or your daughter, your husband or your son. Or maybe it's in some of the, the, the reality or talk shows we might watch or some of the social media accounts you might follow that appeal to an audience of people who just want to see other people's lives lit on fire. I mean, do, do you click on the clickbait Promising news of this celebrity's demise. Do you secretly enjoy posts that pound on this politician or pastor whom you disagree with? The things we're entertained by often reveals the evil of our hearts. And I know it feels like I'm a few degrees separated from this text. But let me bring it back and show you how I think it relates. I think when most of us read this passage, we read it in shock and horror and anger at what they did to Jesus, the way they humiliate and mock him. But we have a convenient way of separating their treatment of Jesus from our treatment of people. 
the words and actions that come up out of our hearts and flow into our belittling and demeaning others is quite similar to these soldiers. But even if, if we're courageous enough and bold enough to acknowledge that, we tend to make an even greater disconnect between our treatment of people and our treatment of the Lord. Yeah, I might demean and put others down from time to time. I might mock and make fun of others. I might enjoy others' humiliation, but never would I do that to Jesus. Never would I mock or make fun of him. Really? But what do you think your treatment of others created in his image is? Mockery of him, the creator. Proverbs 17, 5 says, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. What do you think all sin is? It's mockery against the good and holy God who rules over all the world and tells us how we ought to live under him. I wonder if you make a mockery of Jesus. By claiming to be a Christian, but living as if he has no rule over you. He is not king in any real sense over your life at home, or over your life at school, or over your conduct online or on, on your smartphone. He's not king over your speech or your thoughts or over your body. Your hell, king of the Jews, to him is nothing but wordplay. Followed by countless acts of sin against him that show what you truly think about him. Each and every sin like a continuous spit in his face, like a strike on his head again and again and again and again and again. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I wonder, can, can you see yourself in the soldier's treatment of Jesus, the son of God? Here? I mean, they use God's gifts against God. Time and creativity and resources. They take the precious time that God has given them and take their precious time before leading Jesus to the cross to belittle him in the governor's headquarters. They look around and, and, and find resources, thorns, sticks, robes. And, and they take those resources and use their creativity to employ them as props in this impromptu play. With Jesus playing the unwitting main character in this parody for their pleasure. They use God's stuff against God. Have, have you ever thought of how you, you do that? You breathe God's air and fill your lungs with God's oxygen only to push out of your mouth insults and complaints against God. Yeah. Mockery against Christians for, for holy living and being holy rollers. Curses and vile speech or sexually inappropriate language. You use the time and creativity and resources that God has gifted you with and you make things that make God look small and make you look big. You spend them on yourself for your pleasure and your prestige all the while dishonoring him. You make a mockery of the Lord. He's nothing to you. 
Friends, these soldiers' mockery is a portrayal of what our sin is. Right, right, right. You see this graphic portrayal of, of what they're doing to Jesus, right? It's nothing more than putting, as it were, on the big screen what's already residing in many of our hearts naturally. It shows us what our sin is. It's utter rejection of Christ and his claims. It's seeking to humiliate him and dethrone him and make light of him in favor of our own personal enjoyment and freedom. These soldiers' mockery is joined by the Jewish people's mockery later on. As we'll see, everyone from the passers-by in verse 39 to the religious leaders in verse 41 to even the robbers in verse 43, they all deride Jesus. And Jesus endures it all. This Jesus who from all eternity has been clothed in splendor and honor and has been highly exalted humbles himself to be utterly humiliated, mocked, and scorned, and shamed by us and for us. See the Savior lovingly endure the mockery of men in this passage. Secondly, in this passage, notice the misery of the cross. Point number two, the second thing we see in this passage, the misery of the cross. And now you might miss the misery of the cross here because there's not many details about it. Verses 32 through 38 don't give us a kind of vivid illustration of what it meant to be crucified that movies like the Passion of the Christ display. Well, that's not because the movie over-dramatized things. Mm. That's because death by the cross was so despicable, so devastating, that those who lived in the day didn't need any description to know its dreadfulness. Mm. Such a horror was the cross that people didn't even say the word staros or cross in Greek. They never used that word in conversations. It made you shake and shiver. It was a horrible thing. How different that is from us. For us, the cross has been domesticated. We hang crosses around our necks on necklaces. We, we get crosses tatted on our forearms. Uh, we wear crosses screen printed across our chest on T-shirts. But people in the first century were so horrified by the cross that they didn't even mention it and dared did not want to see it portrayed. It was the most painful and degrading and shameful death that one could possibly die. Let we get a picture of the pain and the shame that Jesus endured on the cross here. Verse 32 tells us that as as they went out, the soldiers leading Jesus, they found a man of Cyrene, which is a region of the Mediterranean coast, west of Egypt, or was a region there. And they made this man carry Jesus' cross. Simon probably came up from Cyrene to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. In any case, here he finds himself enlisted into temporary service of the Roman army to carry Jesus' cross. Why did Simon need to carry Jesus' cross? Well, because Jesus' body was so beaten and burdened that he could not carry his own cross. And no wonder. I mean, just think of the immense 
physical and psychological pain of such an act. This large horizontal cross beam, which would later be attached to a vertical beam to, to form that T of the cross. That thing was heavy. That cross beam was heavy. It could weigh up to 200 pounds. A fully healthy man would have some trouble carrying 200 pounds of wood on his shoulders, let alone a man who's just endured a night of sleeplessness and then hours of intense and brutal whipping and beating. And the wood of that cross beam wasn't all smoothed over like the wood on this little polished cross of there. It was rough and full of splintered. It would be scraping up against that open body every step you took. Think of the physical pain. And think of the psychological effect of it. You were forced to carry your own instrument of death. It's like being forced to tie the loop on your own noose. It's like being forced to clean and load your own rifle used for your execution. Jesus and the soldiers finally reached the place of execution. And notice in verse 33 how Matthew is intentional in not only telling us the name of the place, but the meaning of the name. It's at Golgotha, which means place of a skull. The definition is meaning to alert us to its dreadfulness. So many people have been crucified here at Golgotha. So many bodies die on the cross. So many skulls fill the landscape in makeshift tombs. And here at Golgotha, the misery only continues and heightens. In verse 34, we read the soldiers offer Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but when Jesus tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, some think that the drink here was used to, to dull pain. And so Jesus refused, wanting to experience the, the full weight, the, the full sense of what he was enduring. It's possible, but unlikely. I mean, these soldiers have shown Jesus no sympathy whatsoever so far at all. They've only mocked and ridiculed him, and it continues even now. As he's extremely thirsty, they give him something utterly undrinkable. They sickly mix the wine with bitter gall or myrrh so that when Jesus takes one sip, he can't bear to drink any more of it, even as thirsty as he is. He probably takes that sip, and they probably all laugh again. It's in fulfillment of Psalm chapter 69, verses 20 and 21. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus was in despair. But when he looked for pity, he found no pity, no comforters. When he looked for something to quench his thirst, he found only sour wine to drink. It all culminates in verse 35 with Jesus finally being crucified. Look at verse 35. Matthew says, 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. But the way Matthew describes it is almost as an aside. He almost passes by it in silence. He makes it seem like crucifixion is just a normal activity. But again, he didn't need to explain the horror of it. They, they knew it. The original readers knew it. What he didn't need to describe, but that we should know, is the incredible pain and agony of being crucified. Jesus' hands would be stretched out on that cross beam that he couldn't carry. And a peg would be nailed into each wrist, through each wrist, into that wood. The, the, that horizontal cross beam would then be lifted up with Jesus' body and attached to that vertical beam. And Jesus' feet would then be crossed, foot over foot. And another peg would be drilled through both feet into the wood of that vertical beam of the cross. And then that body would be stretched out on the cross, the arms suspended, uh, holding all the body's weight and making it difficult to breathe. The only way to, to get enough breath was to push your feet up on the cross and get, uh, uh, but with each push, each lunge to try to get some breath, those pegs would rip through all the flesh and tendons of the wrist and the feet. And with each lunge, each push up, not only would those pegs be ripping through the flesh and the tendons, but that rugged piece of wood that the back was on would be digging into that open flesh of the back that had been beaten all night long. That's what Jesus went through. And over the cross, a sign with the charge against him. This is Jesus king of the Jews as a warning to all those who would come by and see that this is what happens to anyone who dares challenge Rome's rule you end up like this fool beaten down, battered, bruised hung up to die like every other fool who thinks they can win every other fool who dares claim to be king and if the physical and psychological abuse weren't enough, add to it, as we talked about, the verbal abuse that Jesus endured on the cross. Again, verses 39 and 41 and 44 describe the reviling from different sets of Jewish people against him, challenging him, criticizing him, calling him out, and Jesus takes it all. All the pain all the shame, and the most astonishing thing is that he was innocent. Mm. Unlike the two criminals who humbled him on either side, Jesus had done nothing wrong whatsoever. So why would he go through such severe suffering for us? That brings us to the, the next theme, the third theme we see emerge from this text, the mercy of our Lord. Point number three, the mercy of our Lord. In Exodus chapter 34, verses six through seven, the Lord testified to Moses as he passed by him who he is. And he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This God is merciful and forgives sin. At the beginning of our book, Matthew, we read that Jesus was God become man. And that an angel visited the Virgin Mary and told her that, that she would conceive a son by the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 1.21, he told her, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hmm. Well, this is how he would do it. He just told Mary that announcement and told us that, that announcement at the beginning of the book. What he didn't tell Mary was the means, the how it would happen. This is how he would do it on the cross. But we're reminded of that fact, even if subtly, by the first words of the sign that hangs over Jesus' head. I mean, look at the first words that hang over Jesus' head in verse 37. This is Jesus. Well, what has Matthew told us that Jesus has come to do? Well, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Even in the, the first words of the sign, oh, this is Jesus. Remember what Jesus came to do. And this cross is the means by which he will come to do it. We've all committed these sins that we need to be forgiven of against a good and holy God. We all deserve God's utter rejection and God's utter punishment. We all deserve to be cast into eternal fire and hell for our sins against an eternally good God. But God, in his love, has chosen not to judge us as our sins deserve. He's chosen not to respond in wrath, but in mercy by offering salvation and forgiveness in and through his son, Jesus. As we look at this passage, and see the incredible mockery and the incredible misery that Jesus endured. What is meant to do is shine a light even more incredibly on his amazing mercy. And all the, the misery, all the mockery that he endured, that he went through. What's it all to show us the amazing mercy of our Lord? Jesus does not respond to us as we deserve. Jesus on that cross withholds his wrath. He withholds his revenge. He has compassion on us, even with all our continued callousness and maliciousness. I mean, consider again the continued mockery and abuse Jesus went through on that cross, and this time from the Jewish people. Earlier, it was from the Roman pagan soldiers. They knew no better, but this time from the Jewish people. If anyone should have been sympathetic to Jesus, it should have been his native people. If for nothing more than ethnic pride, they should have said, oh, Romans, you're not going to treat our guy like that. Right? Only we can do better. Right? If, if, if just for that, they should have said, we'll treat him better than the Romans did. Even more, if anyone should have been eager to accept Jesus and his claims, it should have been the Jewish people who long awaited a Messiah. But Jesus, the Messiah, came to his own and his own did not receive him. Mm. Now listen to their words in this passage. In verse 39, we read that those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. 
If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. This utter disbelief of Jesus and his claims. You supposedly have supernatural powers to, to be the temple destroyer and rebuilder. Well, you got so much power and authority to, to throw down the mighty stones of the temple, then you should be able to come down from a wooden cross. I mean, if you are the son of God, that is. Notice in their words, echoes of another reviler. Remember back in chapter four, when Jesus was, was tempted in the wilderness, Satan tempted him with the words, if, you are the son of God. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, right, throw your da yourself down from this pinnacle. For it is written that he gives his angels command over you. Satan tempted Jesus to prove he was the son of God by abandoning the father's purpose. By using his divine prerogative as the son to bypass trials and suffering. To each temptation in the garden or in the wilderness, Jesus refused. Until finally, Luke's account tells us that the devil departed from him. Until an opportune time. Well, there's no more opportune time than now. In this most intense trial, he thought the wilderness was something. Look at the cross. No more opportune time for the devil to come in and, and to try to get Jesus off God's plan than now when he's enduring the most severe suffering. Satan here comes again, not directly as he did earlier in the book. That didn't work. So he comes indirectly through Jesus' own people, through the Jews, with the same purpose to get Jesus to serve himself. To get Jesus to save himself. To get Jesus to seek the easy life. The pain-free life. To get Jesus to abandon the cross. And he plays on Jesus' pride to do so. And Jesus, show them who you really are. I mean, these little passers-by. They're not even important enough to have their names or titles listed. Who are these people? They just say, they passed by. They're just Jewish pilgrims passing by. How are they going to tell you, Jesus, the son of God, that you can't come down? Prove it to them, Jesus. Friends, Satan is a slimy rascal. Mm. He'll use any technique, any tool, any time to try to get you to turn away from doing God's Amen. will. Beware of his game. Beware of his plotting. Beware of being lured and captured by him to do his will. Pray constantly, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In verse 41, those who have been most active in opposition to Jesus throughout this book, they add their voices to the fray. The religious leaders also mock, saying, he saved others. And he did all these mighty works to deliver others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe him. The robbers in verse 44 said much of the same. 
of Jesus Christ, unlike every other person who ever hung on a cross, actually had the power to come down from it. I mean, this is the one who commanded the winds and the waves simply by his words. This is the one who turned back the immense power of darkness and caused blind people to see. Do you think he can't take out a few nails? I mean, for, for Jesus, these huge pegs that held everyone else's limbs inescapably to the cross were nothing were but nothing like thumbtacks to him. He could have popped those things out with a fingernail if he wanted to. He could have easily climbed down from the cross. But this is a man who refused to come down from the cross. Not because, as the chief priest implied, he could not save himself, but because if he saved himself, he would not save others. And that's what he came to do. Amen. To save others, to save sinners, to save you and me. And even at the height of what such people like you and me, what such sinners do, reject God over and over and over again and deny his claims and power. Even as Jesus on the cross experiencing that again and most intensely, he chooses to suffer and to die for us. Amen. I mean, he could have replayed in his mind. All the times people have rejected who he was from his brothers growing up in the household and, and even as they grew older, rejecting his claims to all the Jewish people, to all the religious leaders, to the scribes and the Pharisees, to even his own disciples, to Judas and Peter. Jesus could have replayed all the moments that people had rejected and mocked him and said, I'm done with them. Down I will come. But Jesus did not come down from that cross. If Jesus came down from the cross, all the condemnation of our sins would come down on us. There would be no hope, no help, no substitutionary sacrifice in our place. There would be no redeemer, no friend, no atonement, no reconciliation with God. There would be no forgiveness. The only faith that would be ours would be having to face an angry God without a mediator. How marvelously self-denying and merciful Jesus shows yes. himself to be. Yes. Were it us? If it had been us and we had the power to escape pain, peace, <laughs> bye, we would have used it. Were it us, maybe we could endure the physical pain. It's often that we can endure some physical pain, but let folks talk down to us. Let folks dare question us. Let folks demean us. Let folks spit in our face. Oh my gosh. It is a wrap. Worry us. You want to catch these hands. But it's not us. Amen. Amen. It's somebody better than us. It's somebody more powerful than us. But this more, better, more powerful person than us humbles himself and shows mercy to us. By staying on the cross. By dying for every single one of our sins, even as he spit in his face. Even as we continue to mock and revile him, he stayed on the cross for us. 
so we wouldn't stay in the pit of hell. Considering his great mercy toward us cause us to make a response. It demands a response. Who else has endured so much for you? Your mama loves you, but she don't love you as much as Jesus loves you. Your spouse loves you. Your your children might love you. Your parents might love you. Nobody loves you like Jesus. He actually endured all the pain and all the mockery. And we'll see next week or in a couple weeks, he's going to endure God's full wrath for you. No one loves you that much. No one has endured so much for you. No one has loved and cared for you so much to take the worst possible judgment for you to die in your place. If Jesus has shown you such mercy, you must respond to him in repentance and faith. We must confess our sins against them. We must confess that with my mouth and with my actions, I've reviled and mistreated you. And we must turn away from those sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. Considering Christ's great mercy to us also calls us to be merciful towards others. Saints, nobody has treated you as bad as you treated Jesus. No one has talked to you as bad, has taunted you as much, has inflicted as much pain on you as we've inflicted on Jesus. And yet he was long-suffering with us, merciful to us, loving towards us, self-sacrificing for us, forgiving us. How is Jesus' model of mercy moving you right now to show mercy towards those who said or done incredibly hurtful, even mean-spirited things to you. Don't make this hypothetical. Who do you need to show mercy towards today and forgive? Uh, Who do you need to, to extend grace to today? It's the easy thing to leave the hard relationship, to leave the hard situation. It would have been easy for Jesus to say, y'all did me wrong. I'm leaving the cross, but he stayed. And through his grace, you can stay and you can show the same kind of mercy, compassion in that hard situation that Jesus showed you. Who do you need to show that mercy to today? Is it, is it a spouse? Is it a family member? Is it a church member? Is it a friend? Look at the amazing mercy of our Lord in this passage. And you, empowered by his spirit, go and do likewise. The fourth and last thing we see emerge from this text is the majesty of Christ. Number four, the majesty of Christ. Perhaps by now you've seen clearly the the mocking and the misery and even the mercy, but where is their majesty in this passage? Well, we find it in the ironic put-downs from the people of Jesus here. Notice how often Jesus' kingship is brought up as a supposed scorn. In verse 29, the soldiers mockingly bow before Jesus and say, Hail, King of the Jews! In verse 37, the sign that hangs over Jesus' head on the cross reads rather mockingly, the 
king of the Jews. In verse 42, the chief priests and scribes sneer, he is the king of Israel. The ironic thing is that this badly beaten and bloody and crucified man really is the king. Amen. It's what Matthew's gospel has been pointing us to all along. I mean, from the first verse of the first chapter where Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, he notes first and foremost, he was the promised son of David. He was the king from David's line who would rule forever. And to the second chapter when Jesus was born and the wise men came into Jerusalem asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? To Jesus' own self-pronouncement when he started his public ministry in chapter 4, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. It is what the whole Bible has been pointing us to. The coming of the king. All throughout the Bible, uh, God's set up kings to, to represent him and to represent his people. But all those kings failed. Adam was the first king whom God assigned to rule over the earth, to have dominion over the earth and to image him. But Adam failed as a king. God set up Israel as a nation to be a kingdom of priests to rightly reflect God to those around him. But around them, but Israel failed as a kingdom. Later, God said, okay, let me go back to one person. He narrowed it down from a nation to one person, King David, who would represent the entire nation of Israel and who would live under God's rule and teach God's people how to live under God's rule. But King David failed as a king. But there was another king promised from David's line. All right. And had the people read their Bibles well, they would have known that suffering and kingship went together. I mean, David suffered greatly as a king. Why would you think that the greater David would not suffer? Jesus' suffering didn't disqualify him from being king. It was the fulfillment of his kingship. As this king, though he did live a life of rightly representing God, also represented God's people. And he took on himself their sins to suffer so that they might live. This king laid down his life for his subjects and on the cross crushed their greatest enemy, sin and death, proving to be the king of kings and lord of lords, even in this most despicable of places. Amen. The cross for Christ was not simply his condemnation for sinners. The cross for Christ was his coronation as king. Amen. I can't say the point any better than your Baptist pastor J.L. Reynolds wrote 200 years ago, reflecting on Christ's kingship. He said, when Christ uttered in the judgment hall of Pilate the remarkable words, I am a king, he pronounced a sentiment fraught with unspeakable dignity and power. His enemies might deride his pretensions and express their mockery of his claim by presenting him with a crown of thorns, a reed and a purple robe, and nailing him to the cross. But in the eyes of unfallen intelligences, he was a king. A higher power presided over that derisive ceremony. 
and converted it into a real coronation. That crown of thorns was indeed the diadem of empire. That purple robe was the badge of royalty. That fragile reed was the symbol of unbounded power and that cross, the throne of dominion, which shall never end. Mm. The cross was Christ's throne. Where even with his death, he declared his rule. On the cross, he commandeered the fates of millions of people. On the cross, he consumed God's wrath towards us. And on the cross, he conquered death. On the cross, the king was victorious. You see his majesty in this text? Christ is our crucified king. Do you see him as the king for you? Friends, don't be like the soldiers, passers-by, the religious leaders, or the robbers. And even as you see this unique man on the cross through our text this morning, don't continue to berate him. See the king on the cross and bow your knees before him. Bow your heart before him in devotion and in love and in lifelong obedience. This king is worthy of your praise. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for King Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to meditate on the cross that our king took for us. Shame, ridicule, the scoff, the beating, bleeding, the judgment for sins that he endured for us. And move our hearts to let nothing replace our obedience and devotion and allegiance to him. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us how we've mocked ridiculed, despised, rejected, and killed Jesus with our sins. And grant new life to those today who need to know him. And strengthen the rest of us in him. We pray in his name and for his glory.